This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. College campuses have to deal with students' mental health in a way many schools never thought they'd have to. The COVID pandemic has hammered the college campus with stunned students and those who feel alone and lost. Dr. Tiffany Herbert is the Associate Vice President of Health and Well-Being at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. She has spent 18 years helping students and staff on the campus she loves. We sit down and chat about what she has seen and what is happening moving forward on the college campus. I think that a lot of times when we hear about I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I, you know, like I have ADHD or things like that, that those are things that we think we have or they're representing feelings that are possibly just within the normal range. So I can be a little hyperactive. I can be a little confused. I can be inattentive. All of those things are natural things to feel. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to my archives. My guests have ranged from Major League Baseball players, Emmy winners, and athletic trainer Chris Bates. If I, I, I think that if you don't really have a purpose for living, why I don't? Why do I even care about living healthy and and doing something good for my body? So it, I think it really boils down to that: is to know your purpose in life. And start there and really start asking some of those deep questions because I have found for me and for a lot of people that I work with, actually all the people that I work with, it just so happens that for athletes, per- they know what they're, they're clear about their purpose. That's the more obvious one, though, because their purpose seems to involve physical activity that the obvious physical activity actually beyond normal physical activity their activity actually requires activity that that can be detrimental to their bodies, <laughs> if we think about it. The rest of my conversation with Chris can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Dr. Tiffany Herbert. I am very excited that I get to sit down with the doctor today. Dr. Herbert, how are you? I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Do you know... You're the first person I met on campus. Really? Yes. When I was having lunch with Myla, you walked up and introduced yourself. That is true. Yeah. I, d- I wasn't on my best behavior, <laughs> but I, I do remember that. Well, it gave me a great impression. I was like, all right, I like the cut of her jib. Okay, good, good. Well, you're still here, so <laughs> that says true. a lot. So I'm, I guess it wasn't too bad. I didn't act up too bad. No, not at all. Oh, that's wonderful. Like I said before, we hit the start button. The research I love to do and the research on what we're going to talk about has been frightening, has been shocking, has been telling. Um, You know, both of us have kids, so we're like in the thick of this, of what life is like. Both of us were raised at obviously a different time, pre-pandemic lifestyles. Mm -hmm. As... Someone who sits in your shoes right now, what keeps you up at night? I worry about, I have an eight-year-old daughter, so I worry about my daughter and what, what it means for her to grow up in this world. And I worry about our students a lot and what it means for them to have health. I, I worry about people and health in general and what it means to have good health 
and to feel healthy throughout a lifetime, not just in the moment, but in a lifetime. What, okay, so let's, let's backtrack. What got you into your career? What got you into psychology? Okay, so I would love to tell you some wonderful story <laughs> about how I was struck by lightning and all of a sudden I became a psychologist. No, I, I really was born for, I was, ma- I was born for this profession. It is really truly the, one of the only things I've ever wanted to do from the time I was a child. And I, I did not always have the language to know what a psychologist was, but I knew that all my friends were always coming to me with what's with their problems. And I always had some pretty good advice. And a childhood friend of mine who I still am in contact with, Donovan Hove from fourth grade, he he decided that he was going to nickname me Oprah Winfrey because that because I always had advice for everyone. And so no one was no one in my life was surprised that I decided to become a psychologist. However, my family, uh, the elders in my family thought I needed to be a lawyer. And so they always kept saying, like, you want don't you want to be a lawyer? What did they see in you that they thought that would be? Well, I probably argued a little, <laughs> a little too much. Um, or, or, or correctly. Or correctly. You know, I'm just trying to make my point. Right. Uh, I, was, I, I was opinionated. But also my, my family is from, my mother's from St. Lucia uh, in the West Indies. And I think that they thought that becoming a medical doctor or a lawyer meant that you were successful. Okay. And being a psychologist was like for crazy people. <laughs> that didn't really, that, that didn't translate as to how would you make a living? How did that make sense? And so it really was kind of an ignorance about what, what even psychology was. Sure. I was never intending to be a, lo- a lawyer. Never. That was not even ever on my radar. But I was in in graduate school when my great aunt asked me, are you still going to be a lawyer? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm in graduate school now. You have to accept I'm going to be a psychologist. Are you still going to become one? Like yeah. you were just fooling around at this point. I guess you so. Were- so they've all, accept- they've all since accepted the reality, I hope. <laughs> So, I mean, you even in high school, going into college, was your mindset like this was it? Nothing else ever came across? There was absolutely nothing else I thought I would do. Now, what, I, what did change was what type of psychologist I would be. I thought originally that I would be a child psychologist, but I always knew I would be a psychologist. Okay. And so I always knew I'd go to college. Now, I didn't, I didn't. I, you know, I'm the first in my family outside of one of my aunts to go to college. I didn't know what the pathway was. I didn't know what it meant to become a psychologist. I didn't know what you needed to do, but I knew already I was going to college. And so I I admit that I chose a profession that I just really didn't know much about other than that you talk to people about their problems. Okay. That was it. And so what developed over time was an understanding of this profession and where I fit based on my own values or my own bandwidth. Um, and I, through time, abandoned the idea that I would be a child psychologist because that, that's a, a very tough field. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. <sighs> and I think, you know, I've always thought I have a very entrepreneurial spirit. So I was, 
I always think of businesses to make and things like that. So I thought, oh, I'd create a business. And I always wanted to work for myself. And so private practice seemed like I could get my education. Is I could build a business. Okay. And then I'd have autonomy. And as an only child, I just want to do what I want to do. So it works perfect for me. And so that was the logic. So it was very logical. It was passion driven, but logical in that I wanted to have autonomy. I wanted to make money and be secure financially. And I really wanted to roam, right? And and just do what I wanted to do. So were you thinking then at that stage, was it going to be like corporate was it family? Was it adults? Like, cause now there's, there's so many branches. Right, right. So I thought when I was in high school, I thought I'd become a child psychologist and I'd, I'd make a private practice sure. and do whatever I wanted to do. When I got into college and I started to learn more about psychology, I became involved in trying to figure out how to help communities. And so I was like, I'm going to make this uh, field of psychology where you you mesh together clinical work and kind of social work. And I'm, I, I know I'm going to be a groundbreaker in this, right? Until I had a class called community psychology. <laughs> and, and in that class, I learned about how you use principles of, of psychology to really impact communities. And that was something that was important to me about how and, th- and thinking, really reflecting on my own family and how they immigrated here to the U.S. and made a life for themselves and, and all the things that we've been through, how one person and even my own individual change changed the whole shape of our whole family. And so I wanted to think about how you help communities be better. So I wanted to help individuals, but I also wanted to figure out how you help communities. And through that, I had a professor who... Um, who sort of mentored me, and I started to work for and do community work. And then I decided to go, well, I already knew I was going to graduate school because you can't get a job as with a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I decided to go to school for community clinical psychology so I could do individual work but also be thinking about psychology in the more larger sense of co- in, in a community-based Right. Did way. that next level, did you take to it? Was it pretty easy? Yeah, I, I loved graduate school. I, I loved it. Um, it was easy because it all seemed natural okay. to me. Um, it, it, even undergrad, it, it, I, I got, had to study lots of things I didn't want to study in sure. undergrad. So that was a little more difficult. But in graduate school, it was really putting language to something I was already feeling. You know, okay. something that came that, that I felt intuitively or what came naturally to me. And so that was exciting that now I had all these words to go with what I felt was right. You know, yeah. uh, and so I didn't just it wasn't just Tiffany felt it was right. Right. It was like now. No, it really is right because I read it and it was re- <laughs> it was research. There's research. Right? Yeah, there's. So it it uh, just brought to life. I, I always kind of say it just put some color to the picture. Okay. All right. When you get done with college, what's your plan? So I went to, I I finished up at uh, Loyola, and then I went to graduate school. as a five-year program that where I got my master's degree and PhD all Oof. at the same time for five years. I did actually did my last pre-doctoral internship right here in this counseling center. Really? And um, I did. 
And at the time, there was a big pressure to do uh, a, an internship that was stamped by the American Psychological Association, an okay. APA internship. Well, it was a one-year internship that didn't pay much of anything. So I was not down with that. Um, but that was the standard at the time. And so I decided to take an internship here. And I just, I mean, I just fell in love with the students. Now, I wasn't sold 100%. I was, I was clear that I was getting my hours because I was still on this pathway that I would go off and get, a, get licensed I'd eventually get licensed, get a private practice, and still just wander and do what I wanted to do. Right. Um, and, and in the meantime, before that, in graduate school, I'd done some consulting with uh, nonprofit organizations, and that was what my dissertation was on, uh, burnout and coping in nonprofit executives. Mm. And so that was my a, a part of my passion. And so that this is actually where I started out. Wow. Interesting. So what... Do you stay or do you go on and come back? So I finished the year and um, I took the summer off and in fall they called me and said, well, we have some hours. Do you want to pick up some hours? And I said, okay, <laughs> because my supervisor at the time had retired and I picked up about 30 hours a week and I worked. And then in January, when the spring came along, then I was hired in a tenure track position. Wow. Here. And then I've been here ever since. Ever since. Since January 2005, formally. So how was those first couple of years? How was, you know, you're new to it. How was that for you? Well, let me kind of break that down. Professionally, this is where, Dominguez Hills is where I learned to be a professional. Okay. It's where I learned to be a psychologist. I, I was sitting around this table we're sitting at now <laughs> with other psychologists who were acting equally as quirky as I act every day. And it was how you actualize yourself in this work and on a campus. So I'd learned that. I'd already had the book stuff. So I had all that stuff. And this was how, how do you live this out? And so um, that was good. Um, I was still needing to gather hours for the licensing exam, and so I was doing that at the same time and studying for the licensing exam, which I passed. But I was also still struggling with this this only childness of mine that I need to not be locked down. You know, I need to be roaming around, and I still moved forward with creating a private practice and being able to have some autonomy there. And at that time, I thought, I'll stay here. Somebody came along and told me that you get retirement like in five years, so I'll just stay that long, and I'll probably leave after that. Sure. The but plan. <laughs> that was the plan, right? <laughs> and But our students were very amazing. And so at the time, when I started here, Dominguez Hills had a 33% black student population. Okay which was the highest of any, any place around. Right. And Especially so, on the West. Right. Yeah. And so I think at that time I was probably only the, the only uh, black psychologist we had here on staff. And so it was like amazing. You know, I get to work with these students who never even knew what college was for or never, never had the kind of plan I had to go to college or, 
access or privilege, and they stumbled their ways into their, themselves into college, and I got the privilege of kind of being a part of their journey, and also really having the privilege of breaking down some stigma around mental health for people that, you know, were part of my my community. Right. And so that was um, an amazing part, but our students in general at the time were just off the chart amazing. So in, we, in what way? When you say amazing. They had, they were parents. They were, number one, the age range was like all over the place. And it is still now. Right. But I saw 70-year-old students. I, I saw grandmothers. I saw parents. I saw folks from foster care. Like, I was thinking. The whole gamut The you whole saw. gamut. Right. It's and not like high school where you got a 14-year-old or an 18-year-old. No. Right? So dynamic. And people You've got veterans. You've everyone. got parents, single parents. Yeah, divorce. That's right. Yeah, you got it all. Single dads. Right, single dads. You know, yeah. people Widows. Who, I mean, you got, I'm sure you. got out of, out of jail. You know, it was like really... Um, amazing that's a broad swath very like, much so very much so and 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 really to backtrack for a moment um i had an internship one of my internships was uh working with children who uh had been abused oh, and so that was really the moment and and i would just walk to my car and cry and that was the moment i was like i will not see children do they prep you for that or how do you I well, mean, that's that's you get thrown in and you get some training, but you but it wasn't just um, it wasn't just, you know, physical and, and other types of abuse. It was also just the complications of poverty, you know, children who were uh, being removed from the home by DCFS. And I was doing home visits like therapy in the home. at oh, the time. Doc, it was just sad. And, and the children were all amazingly resilient. They, you know, I learned so much from them. These children were amazing, but children come with parents. And so when I realized that I can do a lot with these children, but I can't move their parents. Right. So I said, you know, I realized that that's where I'd reached my limit. That, 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 that was beyond what was, was my capacity. <sighs> Personally. Jesus. So here to fast forward at, at Dominguez, you know, I got this population of folks who were intelligent enough, still sort of like children sometimes, but intelligent enough to really take ownership in their lives and change legacies for their families and themselves and make decisions and grow. So such a formative time uh, and space. What were... What were you seeing early on? Because 2005, right? Let's say you go for the first five or six, seven years. There's no social media. There's MySpace. But you're not, it's not on your phone. There's no one's got iPhones yet. Right? you got to be on your desktop. How were students like for you pre-social media? Well, uh, our students were accountable, determined, committed, and... While they had a lot of fun, but all of those things, they, there were students here who wanted to be here because at that time, not all of college was not as impacted. So you could you you could go anywhere, and Dominguez Hill certainly was not impacted. So these were folks who chose to be here okay. and wanted an education. So I think that alone, there was something in the spirit of what was happening. 
I also think that we got the opportunity to the, the issue of social media is sort of a pro and a con. Right, right. Um, the con, well, the con was that we couldn't reach people as easily as we can now. Mm-hmm. So we would print all these flyers. Go, I, would, I would print all these fly, flyers because prior to my coming here, this center did no outreach. That was not the goal of the center. Really? It was just that if you saw the little tiny sign on the door that said psychological right. services, yeah. and you happened to kind of wonder what that was, you would come in. There would be maybe a sign here in, in orientation or things like that, but aggressive outreach was really on my radar. And you know this, in cult, some culturals, you don't go. You just don't. You just don't. It's not talked about. You don't go. You don't. Suck it up. Right. And a part of how the uh, administration at the time thought to deal with that was to place psychologists in uh, the career center or what we call it then student development. So okay. they were sort of secretly there <laughs> to help people. But and so so my my agenda was really to talk about stigma and bring some of this stuff to light. And so I distribute flyers and go talk to classes and do all of that stuff. And what I loved about that was that that's how I made the relationships that I have now on campus. That's how I met professors. That's how I engage with students. That's how we softened it. You know, I was able to soften it and a little, do a little hand-holding for you to come in the door. And that's what got people in. Once you got them here, though, they were Once they got here, they were fine. We also had a very compassionate front office staff that if you came in and you looked a little unsure, unsure they sure. would run after you and say, please, please, please just come. Right. It's okay. You know, and so we were working together in that way. So pre-social media, we really had to do a lot of footwork to get out there. Yeah. I mean, you were selling the place because right. nobody knew about it. Right. And so... You know, I don't think I have to run down the list of where things went wrong with social media. You know, things are right in that we can reach. We probably, Josephine, our mental health educator, reaches over 10,000 students through social media. She does a fantastic job. And I, I appreciate that for the access to information that it provides. But on the other end, I think it provides some distance. And there's not much of a personal touch to saying, you know, Matt, here is what's going on with you. I see you. Let Come on in so I can give you a hand. Right. There's also this other implied piece that if I read this post, that's enough. I've done my part. Right, yeah. When that, that's, that's not enough. Not, not at all. No. And, you know, so it's, social, it's, it's internet and social media, right? Because now I got it. And so I'll just give you, my daughter says, like, you know, I watched this guy on TikTok. He's a doctor. Do you think I have ADHD? I'm like, no, you don't have ADHD. She's like, well, I couldn't listen in class the other day. And I said, well, you just weren't listening in class. Like, that, you don't have ADHD, right? That and you're eight. Yeah, and she's eight. She's dying. She's not the child of a psychologist at all. But, but she, you know, but the fact that she saw this on TikTok, she made an inference at eight. She's thought to, you know, luckily talk about it and explore it, but that could have been in her mind. And then what? Right. And so now we it's do It's funny see how she diagnosed herself. Easily. Yeah. He says so. I think I follow these patterns. I got it. Sure. We've been through, we've th- been through that. She says, oh, I think I have anxiety. Do you, do you think I have anxiety, mom? Do you think I have anxiety? No, you don't have anxiety. Well, everyone has anxiety. Yes. That's natural, right? 
but not a disorder. Oh, oh, okay. Well, what makes it a disorder? So now we're having a different conversation because of social media. Right. And she's not even on TikTok. She just watches it on YouTube. But it's, you know, it, that's another story. But <laughs> but this access to information, sometimes it's a little, you know, it's a fire hose. It's a lot. Yeah. And it's a lot to integrate. And while I think the middle ground, I have a great appreciation for the middle because I want consumers to be empowered with education. I want our students and people to know what it means to be diagnosed or to have health or to take medication or to have a disorder, but also know when to ask for help. And I think those are the pieces that um, that's the part where we're a little bit stuck is about the asking for help. Right. Part. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a crisis going on and campuses are rethinking the way they're approaching mental health. I mean, it's actually a word now that somebody uses. You can be an Olympian and you have to step out for a couple of days, take a break and this and that. That was something not thought of in the early 2000s. Like, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. So when do you start to see this different approach take early in your career, mm-hmm. take, take in hold and actually start to work? Well, at Dominguez in particular, um, back in 2003, we had a system-wide, in the CSU system, we had a mental health grant, the first of its kind, where we all got to do a project, and we got some money from the uh, uh, Mental Health Services Authority. And we were able, for our campus, our, our campaign was Kick the Stigma, and suicide prevention. That's what the campaign was about. And so it was it was the time when I feel like we took from the shadows, something from the shadows to light in a really, in a coordinated way. And we said, we're not going to shy away from saying suicide and suicide prevention. We're going to talk about it. We're going to bring people to campus who talk about it. We're going to talk about mental health. And we started mental health first aid and we wanted people to become engaged everyone to to become engaged with mental health. So it was the time here on campus that we saw that we got some buy-in. So it wasn't just Tiffany's task to solve the mental health problems of the world. It was everybody. We all had to engage in that. Mm -hmm. And so that was something, you know, so I kind of always talk about these things in two ways. Institutionally, that's what changed. But also, at the same time, I think that represented what was happening in society. So school psychologists were becoming a big, a big profession in okay. high schools. Right. LAUS, LAUSD had doubled down on that profession. And so students started coming to us with the idea that they had already seen a counselor okay. of some sort. They said, well, I had a counselor in high school. Can I have a counselor here? Well, it's a little bit different, but at right. least they had some they had some idea okay. of what that meant. So I think their awareness, and so it is kind of like a perfect storm. So you have social media, the trends that are happening. We're watching, you know, violence and, and death and things like that. And so you're starting to see society change. And so because of that, now our student population started to change in terms of what they wanted or what they were able to have the bandwidth to engage in. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. When, when the pandemic's hitting, so we're jumping ahead to 19, right? So we're well, we've gone through social media. Everybody's 
trying to figure out like I don't have to be an influencer in my life or being diagnosed with something online. When the pandemic hits, that really seems to set people back. It's going to be a probably a one hell of a long-term project for people to look back and go, what did two and a half years do to generations of people? Mm-hmm. Right. When, you know, that March of 2020, when we're just flattening the curve, what are your thoughts going through your head about students, mental health, how you're going to deal with people? And as it kept going on, you know, how were you able to, uh, to get to students that you had, you know, I, I want to say a relationship with, but you are, you're, you're a person, you're a lifeboat for them. Yeah. You know, I think that I was just as stunned as, as everyone else. And I'll say, you know, in all honesty, prior to the pandemic, I was, I was growing tired myself. You know, it's a lot. It, it's this profession is very difficult. It's a lot to hold, um, even with boundaries and with self-care and things like that. It's, it's a lot. And mm-hmm. so I was also, you know, thinking differently about my professional self and if and how much longer I could continue to do this. Even though I'm still doing private practice, I thought maybe, you know, how much more bandwidth do I have for this? And so I think the pandemic, and I say that because I'm not the only one having, I'm not the only professional having this experience, right? So whether it's a psychologist or nurses or doctors, in in the pandemic, we all came in the helping professionals to really think about ourselves and the work we do and can we continue to do this work in this way see i think that got forgotten oh yeah that you know because my charge was to come back and help everyone else but i had to spend some time thinking about how how do i help myself right in terms of do do i have the bandwidth and at the time you know, I was serving already as the director of, of counseling here. And does my staff have the bandwidth? Mm-hmm. So it so the pandemic is something that I don't think we, you're right, we don't know the impact of the pandemic yet. But we did know the impact on ourselves. And we know that we all collectively, no matter what race, you know, socioeconomic status or anything you were, we all lost collectively sure we were the the playing field was leveled we all were at the same starting point we all had loss we all had grief we all had virtual 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 we all had racial injustice we all had it it was a lot going on in the pandemic one thing i think we all kind of lose track of we also lost time yes absolutely and i think people forget that whether it's social injustice time we lost time we'll never get back nope 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 and I think that wears on people. They forget about that. Like, oh, my God, loved ones I lost or time with That's my right. grandparent or my mom or a sister. Like those things kind of happen where you go, and that wears on people. Right. And so it's, it's um, we know, when I think about that and, and we see students today, and, and sometimes parents will call me and they say, like, you know, th- this is what's happening with my child. Or we see, you know, a lot of, socially you know inappropriate behavior in spaces people have to remember we were all locked down for for a long time right so you lack you lacked the ability to engage with others and have like a baseline on what's appropriate and what's Mm -hmm. not appropriate Mm -hmm. and so when we got back here to campus we essentially had three years of freshman students right 
they were all socially freshmen. They'd, they'd been in the pandemic in high school. They hadn't ever, some folks had, were already almost juniors and hadn't set foot on campus before. Right. So socially freshmen. Academically, something different. Totally, yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. So I think that a part of what I was thinking when we returned was really trying to figure out how I get a handle on what's going on. Because I couldn't make any, any assumptions. I knew that we had a population of students who had lost, who were um, in a certain, who are Pell eligible, so in a certain socioeconomic bracket, right. who had parents and family members who were still going to work throughout the pandemic, mm -hmm. and who had lost loved ones, and who had these other things going on, like a lack of technology or internet or things like that that, that were obstructions. And so I didn't even know what we were working with. And so it wasn't as easy anymore as walk over to, to the building and go in the classroom and say, hey, are you guys okay? Because every class I showed up to, no one had their camera on, on right. Zoom. Right. And so it was very difficult to gauge what this community needed post you know, at, well, I don't say post-pandemic, but when we return. Right. I mean, because you know this, you've got to see somebody. You can get so much in just reading them, right. their body language, right. their eyes, their hands, right. jitteriness, all right. that stuff. The, the other piece here is that my whole profession itself changed. So, so we, to do video therapy was sort of like a... That was like a fringe thing. I was going to say, was that even like something I mean, some people, some people did it, but it was like those people over there who were doing that thing. But that was not a part of what we considered like reputable. Normal. Right. Normal, yeah. right? The norm. And so. Because you're not going to reach people. Not everybody's got that computer, that bandwidth, right. that internet. Yeah, That's right. Or that's just, that just wasn't the way, it, even in, in the profession of psychology, that wasn't the way you did the work. And so overnight, the profession changed. That will never go back. So not only am I thinking about what's going on with students, like my profession, the light switch, light switch went to another level, where now I have to think about how do I do therapy online? And how do I have to do have, have the same kind of quality online? And then students or clients or patients decided that, yeah, I like this. I like going to therapy in my pajamas. Well, who wouldn't? This is great. And now we have to change the whole environment shifts. The whole profession shifted. I never learned in graduate school about telehealth, but they teach it now. Sure, right. And so, so we had to think a lot about our profession. We had to think about the validity of the work we do, the validity of, the, of you know, how secure is this, is this technology? Are we able to connect? So on and so forth. Do you feel you're better now for it? You're a better psychologist talking to them because you've gone through the video process? Well, we we will never go back. And you know, we will never go right. back. Right, it's it's you embedded. Know, it it is the way it is. Our profession has shifted. It, it I sort of see like, you know, when electricity came. Right. <laughs> like it all, right. you're never going back. These candles it, are great. It changed, <laughs> you know, but we're we you were never going back to just candles, right? And so it never it never will go back. But what I do appreciate is that 
now we are able to see people at their lunch hour, right? You don't have to pay gas or get on the bus to come here and see me. Right. Now I we can provide access to services. So I can appreciate that. And, and a host of other things. Sure. But I mean, but if you had your druthers, you'd rather them sit down with you in the office and let's have a conversation. I'm, I'm sort of a convert. I'm not sure. Really? It's still kind of that, on the fence? I think that there are benefits to both. And I've come to... I've come to accept both ways. Um, in in my in my private practice, I'm still doing all primarily virtual, and so I appreciate the ability to sit down with someone in person. But there are also things that I gain online. Um, so here, for instance, in in we, we operate in a health clinic, so we still wear masks. So I'd rather see you online with no mask than with an with a mask in the room. That's true, right? So yeah. I also think that I've been surprised by the ability to really connect with someone via via a screen, right? And so it really still depends on your level of of intent and commitment and where you are in the process, your, your commitment to the process, I think really impacts what we get out of it, no matter what modality. When the kids came back, what differences were you no, noticing with their mental health? These are college students too. There's not like right. a 10 year old. I mean, this, these kids are mature enough to own a gun, join the military, right. vote, right. have kids, get married. Was there, was there a, you know, right. you, we, we said they were freshmen. Yeah. Was there a worry that you, when you. Absolutely. Had, were you like, oh So boy. there's the prevalence of fear, lots of fear, lots of anxiety, lots of depression that was lingering, held over. So just because the world opened back up doesn't mean that someone's heart or their psyche opened back up. Well, we were all told right. that at some point we can kill somebody if we didn't have a mask on. Right. Right. Or, you know. And you can't, you know, I, I, I sometimes reflect on the pandemic, the time when you were basically like locked in the house. You could not come out yes. if not for whatever particular reason or find toilet paper. Right. It was right? the biggest grounding ever. It was the big, <laughs> right, just to say the least. And so now all of a sudden, oh, wait, you're free. You can get out. And what am I supposed to do with that? And so socially, I think there was a, there's a struggle socially, a lot of social anxiety, social phobia, fear, um, anxiety, um, feelings of um, a lack of confidence because we grow in relationship to others. So if I see you and I'm sitting next to you and Matt looks like he's taking notes, you know what? I'm probably going to take some notes too. I don't right. know about what, but right. I see you're writing. I'm, I'm just, probably going to be writing too. Right. Or you got an A or you got a B, then I'm feeling like I got a B. Okay, I'm, I'm on par with things. So we use our relationships in our, in our community to gauge our progress. Mm -hmm. And so here we are, all anger, you know, I think there was anger, fear, all of those things that came along with returning to campus. And I think that happened across all age groups. Yeah. Right. I don't think it was just limited to one age group. Right. And it's where we live in Fullerton. We live where there's a lot of bars. And I've noticed, you know, pre pandemic, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, they were packed. People were out. And, you know, everybody's trying to form a relationship at a bar two hours. Now half those bars are closed. And right. I can go on a Friday night and they're half empty. Right. And you wonder 
Where is everybody? Where are those relationships? Meeting people. Right. Once you start doing less of that, that's got to wear on the psyche of people. That's right. So the social construct changed, right? So there, if you think about we were raised, there was a social construct. It told you, you know, you go out to you go out to dinner, or you go out with friends, or you go to a bar, you meet someone, you might date that person, and heck, you might marry them, right? The social construct said this is the way it works. Well, the social construct started to shift. Well, we're doing everything online. I can order basically anything I want online. Anything. So, and then what? Wait, what do I need to go out for? And then I've been meeting my friends either through gaming or other other areas through these uh, technology. So then, why would I need to go out exactly? And on top of that, I don't even know if I have the skills. Sometimes people ask, like, and what should I say? What I would go out and do what? <laughs> Why would I, why would I, okay, so you say hello. So essentially, my conversation is how to make a friend. You know, right. I'm blessed enough to have the same friends from second grade and seventh grade, but, you know. You know how rare that is? I, I, I've heard, I've come to realize that's very rare. Yeah. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, those but are good friends. They are very good friends. I, I love them. So it's it's good that people but people have not learned the skill set to do that. They so haven't. that's something that's a learned behavior. And and sometimes the social construct, you think of it like a, a gate around a house, right? It's what keeps you kind of in line. It says this is what is socially appropriate. So we don't go, we don't hit, we don't bite, we don't kick. You know, it's kind of what I tell mm-hmm. my daughter, right? <laughs> you know, and so we don't do that. And so then you go and move forward that way. But all of a sudden, there were no more rules. And so I think that I actually believe that the world's still spinning and we're still trying to figure out what the social constructs will be right. as a result of the pandemic because we're not quite in the clear yet. Is it, tell me this. Give me some wisdom. It's like the chicken and the egg. What comes first? Is it depression or anxiety? Because that's like where you see these, you know, a lot of people right now. Oh, I've got a lot of anxiety. Oh, I'm really depressed. Well, everybody's got anxiety, whether it could be like speaking in front of a group of people or or saying hello to a a cute girl for, you know, trying to meet her in the library. You could be sweaty palms for that. That's right. So, so, okay, let's think about it like this. There's a, there's a range, right? And a, and a continuum and all everything that we, I would consider a disorder is a is a is a trait, right? All the traits have a normal range. So I can feel a little bit paranoid. I can feel a little confused. I could feel anxious, depressed, all of those things within the normal range. Now, it's only clinical depression or anxiety when it's outside of the normal range, meaning it, it's happening more times than it's not happening in your life and it's impacting your ability to function so depression and and anxiety are two different things Mm -hmm. that sometimes people talk about together right and so I think we should not confuse what someone says they have with what they really have because sometimes we don't have the language to articulate what we have and so a part of what I'm seeing now is that in in you know, generationally, or as we return, people feel that if I say I'm depressed, it makes it more serious, 
rather than saying, I'm really sad. And so part of my spiel is that you can be really sad and I can take that seriously. You don't have to say you're depressed. Right, right. Because how would you know? Yeah. Some people are depressed. Sure. But how would you, like, what makes, what makes it depression versus sadness? I also believe that saying I'm depressed is sort of external, like it happened to you. Whether we're saying I'm sad you, is a more vulnerable mm-hmm. statement to make. So I think there's some distance in being able to say the label versus the feeling. And so um, I think that a lot of times when we hear about I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I, you know, like I have ADHD or things like that, that those are things that we think we have or they're representing feelings that are possibly just within the normal range. So I can be a little hyperactive. I can be a little confused. I can be inattentive. All of those things are natural things to feel. And so a part of what we've been talking about lately and my mission for the next year is to really start to give some language to folks around feelings that, okay, you can be very, very sad, okay, but that does not make you depressed. Right. You can be suicidal, but not depressed. You can be, you can be anxious, but not depressed and you can still function. You know, so Mm -hmm. there's all these different levers to pull or to think about when you're thinking about depression and anxiety. There are people who are depressed who also have anxiety. That happens. Right. Or or whichever way. But by the time you're being diagnosed with those, you already experienced some great impairment and functioning. Way before. Yeah, yeah. meaning, you know, you're not able to conduct your life in the manner that you would. Right. You know, when you were feeling healthy or happy. But feeling sad alone is not depression. And so I rarely hear, um, especially uh, younger people come and say, I'm sad. They always say, I'm depressed. Always say, yeah. They don't know the difference. No. And so. Kim and Mike have said they're depressed. I'm depressed. Yeah. And so we need to piece this apart because these are two separate things. So now we've diluted the normal range of emotions. The, the, uh, you know this range where things are just pretty, that's what you're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And so actually you're healthy if you're feeling all of those things within the normal range. Right. It's like pre pandemic or just as a teenager, your anxiety might be three. Right. During the pandemic, everybody see it decided, well, it needs to be at 11. Right. And they just turned up the dial on it. Everybody's got an anxiety. I, I also think that people, all of us, we all want to be wanted, sure. right? And we all want to be heard. And I think there's something about socialization that has happened. We've socialized to make it depression, anxiety, this. We, we, we've upped the ante a little right. bit, right? right. And, and so to say it that way means that it's more serious and it puts more weight on it. Mm-hmm. And we've also responded to that uh, in kind with, with putting more weight on it. And so... I think that we've socially done something like another, like I was talking about the constructs. We built this other construct that reinforces this, that I, you know, I'm hoping that we can begin to put some color to this picture where there's a range of emotions here that people can begin to articulate and then to feel comfortable expressing and still feel like they matter. Right. I, this was unbelievable when I was reading this and I was like, Oh my goodness is anxiety triggers. One of them is caffeine, 
a messy home environment, not enough sleep and stress. And I thought, well, that's, that's called the dorms, isn't it? Isn't that called <laughs> that's college? right. Yes. 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 <laughs> <Isn't> that? <laughs> yes. It's yes. Like that's, that's college in those four things. That like is true. Caffeine, not sleeping, a mess and stress. That's like, true. Yeah. That's not a school motto, but that's college. Right. So, so to go back to, if you can understand, if one can understand their emotions and tolerate their emotions, then they can tolerate some ways to, you know, cope with those difficult emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. But here we are, you're not sleeping. You, so, so it's almost like you have no way to intervene on yourself. Right. Right. So ideally I would think of us like a machine. And then when we started to overheat, the machine would just shut down to save itself. But right now, I think because you don't have the link, some people or some folks don't have the language or the understanding or or the awareness of what it means to have these emotions, it sort of becomes like the machine and it starts to overheat. And so if I know that I'm not sleeping, I'm anxious, too, when I have too much coffee and I'm not sleeping and my house is messy and all of those things. That's true. Right. But I also have to have some understanding and know that that's what's happening with me, some insight, right? So I know that if I go home right now and I clean my room, which I need to do, then I will feel better. But that's insightful. Right. And that comes from understanding that I had an emotion, I'm tolerating that emotion, and I can, I believe I can cope with that emotion. But you're right that here we are in the dorms with a number of students who are learning it's a developmental process. Right. They're learning. You and I talked to do about that. that. Yeah, right. There's right. so many of those kids that are trying to figure it out in a dorm life. Right. They've never either been away from school. They've never lived on their own. Right. They might be an only child. So now all of a right. sudden they're sharing bathrooms and closets right. and tragic a room. Yeah. A bunk bed. Yeah. <laughs> and and what would be and nothing's really wrong. So what would make them come here to see me? Right. So so a part of what I've been talking about last actually this week was really about how we get proactive instead of reactive. And so what happens is they come to me when there's a problem or they've had a breakdown or they are failed at failing a class or they need to go home. But I, I need it's my job to give the skills, the coping skills ahead of time. Right. Right. And so to be able to say, hey, you know what, if you learn conflict resolution, you don't have to fight with your roommate. If you learn you know, how to communicate some communication skills that could help you with your professors. If you learn, you know, how to cook in the dorms, you probably could eat healthier. Right. Mm-hmm. If if I if I give you the skills, then you can gr- you can be healthier. But I think that that's a part of where I'm now thinking about, as you asked that, go back to your other question about what am I thinking about what keeps me up at night. Now that's what I'm, what keeps me up at night is what's my responsibility to give these students what they need to cope with those triggers right. when they come up and they will come up. Would it be, I mean, so many of those things you said, you wish those things were being taught at home. conflict resolution all those little things they're they're not major complex issues it's just a simple thing well that's true but if i come from a family where we fight Mm -hmm. and you know i i happen to just hit my mom and she hits me back then that's probably what i'm going to do right and and so it's and 
or not. Right. You know, or I'm committed to learning something different. But I, at least I, I there could be a framework where I'm allowed to behave this way or I don't know what to do. So I'm going to go just go back to what feels comfortable right. to me. And so I think that if we present skills and and we can we can present that up front, then at least you have the opportunity to try. Would you get a better baseline if you almost got to meet every kid before their school starts? Oh my gosh, just, yes. That's a dream. Right? Yes. Just 20 minutes, sit down, hi, get to know you. So if the, God forbid they come in in March and they're quote unquote a mess, you'd be like, sweetheart, this is where we, this is where you're really at. That's you right. think you're at a nine. You're not, you're at a four. That's right. That's right. And so I would love if I, in my fantasy land, <laughs> I would meet every single student on campus, off campus. I would meet every student and I would create kind of like we, we create these uh, indiv- individualized education plans, right? Like IEP, right? For yeah. students who are struggling developmentally, mm-hmm. like I would create the same sort of plan for health. And not just mental health, but your physical health as well, right? So we have a health center here. We have a counseling center. So let's figure out how we relate those things, how those things go together. Because sometimes the anxiety you're feeling is maybe there's a medical issue. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not an emotional issue. Right. And so trying, I would sit down and say, hey, this is your plan. You know, this is your plan. And that could change. But I would love the opportunity to do that. And so... Now, the best that I can do is just give a buffet of services, right? And so if you can have workshop, you can have individual therapy, you can have a a talk on the walkway with me, or you can have a a video on social media, you can have it however you want it, as long as you have it. How much of mental health that you see is physical? Someone's put on weight or they're struggling in that way. And they think it's, it's bigger than just, let's go for a walk. I think a lot of what we see is attributed to that. And I think we don't know how much of it we see is attributed to medical issues. And um, because if I go, I can go with one problem to see many different specialists and come out with, with their view from their specialty, right? right? So I'll go with my, my, the cardiologist will say it's my heart. Someone else will say it's my ears. Someone else will say, you know, you need physical therapy. And so I think, um, I think we don't know how much of that is in play really. Um, because we may not be assessing for that in a more, in a more holistic way way. And so a part of what we've been talking about as a staff is really the medical rule out, right? Like, so have you thought about the medical concerns that could be on the table here? Also on the medical side, we've been talking about like health equity, right? Is this a student that does not have health insurance Mm -hmm. and has not had a physical or does not even know what a physical is? Right. And what's your role as a provider to be able to engage with that person Mm -hmm. about that? And so I think that, and in, you know, this, we don't know. And, mm-hmm. you, and you know, this it, uh, guys almost get a short end of the stick on this because women will have their gyno. Mm-hmm. But if you're a non-athlete male, you don't get a physical because it's required in high school. Right. You could go for years. Absolutely. Without getting a physical and must, nothing might be wrong. But like you said, checking the car before things go wrong. Absolutely. And, and I think that we, 
you know, having been here 18 years, I've come to accept my responsibility of doing more, right? I need to reach out a little bit more and not assume that someone knows mm-hmm. how to engage with a healthcare provider, how to do therapy, how to access therapy, how to access food, how to access. Other, I, I can't assume any of those things. How many of your friends knew at 18? None. Right. None. At all. That's just, it's so different. None. And so how do you make a medical appointment? How, how do you do this? And so I really have a lot of compassion for the fact that this, these students don't know. And I learned, you know, this, I, I have to be honest, working here in a health center is how I learned to challenge my doctor. Mm-hmm. I was raised that the doctor's always right. Always right. You don't say anything, whether you liked it or you didn't. But then as, as I engage with medical professionals here, they started to ask, well, why didn't you ask this? Why'd you ask that? And I'm like, huh, I can do that. So I became empowered. Right. And so I think about, I don't know where everyone is. There are some students who are so savvy, so quick, so knowledgeable, and that's awesome. And then there are others that aren't. And so I really see my role and that's probably the community psychology piece Mm -hmm. in me. Like my job is to help And not just students, because I think that there are staff and faculty in the same boat, people. Right. And so I think that we, this is a community, it's like a public health issue, not, not just a, a student issue. Sure. Absolutely. And if, and, and most of the time what we found on our campus is that students are connected with our custodial staff, our staff in financial aid or the cashier, our staff members more so than they are with our faculty sometimes. Really? Yes. So there, there, you know, there was someone who, um, one of our custodial staff members that had been having this uh, friendship, you know, just uh, meeting this student, known the student for years. And finally, the student was going to graduate and said, can you please come to my graduation? I really would really mean a lot if you came there. And this custodial staff member took the day off got in a suit and tie and went to the graduation. And it was like the student was saying, like, if you weren't giving me encouragement every day, I don't know if I would have made it. And this story is one of thousands. Now, that's sweet, but it's heartbreaking. Right? It's the weird thing. Well, it's, you know, it really kind of goes to show that we're all educators here and we all have a responsibility for, for supporting one another, for health. So mental health happens to be my expertise, but it's everybody's responsibility. Yeah. And so I can't, I I am not so narcissistic to think that I will single-handedly change the world, but I know that together we can make an impact. Right. And I also know that it's easier to talk to, you know, Fernando, who does our, our landscaping so beautifully. <laughs> I talk to him all the time about stuff. And so talk to Fernando. Then it may be easier to talk to Fernando than it is to talk to me. Right. And if that's what gets the job done, okay. That, that, that's okay. Yeah, that works. Right. Yeah. Talk to him. Talk to somebody. So we all got to buy in. Yeah, because talking to a friend, like, you're not alone here. Right. And I think that's a lot of students' fear. That's right. They're alone. 
and they're right. not. So you pair that with the social isolation. So prior, I may have been sad and my friend group, someone may have sat, be sad or had a situation, but we were there for each other to know you're not alone, right? But as we had the pandemic and there's more social isolation, there's not someone there to say, hey, you're not alone. Yeah. So the, so the, 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 the construct has shifted where we're going. I think it will shift again because I'm an eternal optimist, but um, <laughs> we're getting there. We need a moment. We need a moment. Did you see a change in the staff? I mean, people always forget about that. that Absolutely. You know, students, 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 students. Your, your, your friends here are staff. Yeah. I mean, your staff, staff in this building, the staff are. Absolutely. I'll, I'll admit that, you know, I am an only child. I can stay on lockdown in the quarantine for about 50, the next 50 years easily. Um, and so (laughs) it was, it was, it was pleasant. It was, you know, it was tough in that I was, you know, doing virtual school at home and working from home, but I, I can, I'm very comfortable to stay in my house for weeks at a time. (laughs) You know, I, I, so I, I just say that to say that there are people who are like that. And I I am myself as one of those. And then there are people who are not right. And so the staff were struggling you know, what about the people who had children who couldn't manage all these different different modalities of learning? What about the people and who never, those of us that never wanted to be teachers? What about the people who didn't have children and didn't have family who were alone? What about the people who were taking care of uh, loved ones, caretakers? Right. Th- this was like so, so heavy. And so I did really see an impact on our staff. And I can't tell you the number of departments I've met with about health and the pand- mental health and right. the pandemic for Take themselves, care of you. Right. for themselves. Like yeah. they have called, they have asked, can you come talk to my staff about our mental health? Right. And so um, this was not, and that's what I mean. This wasn't exclusive, you know, this right. impacted all kids. of us. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How was it for you? Other than you would have had no problem binge watching tv and drinking white wine probably totally 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 i'd still be there doing that you know ordering toilet paper online and uh so i i'd still be there you know and so it it i mean did 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 you see somebody i mean did you take your time to kind of rejuvenate because if everybody's got problems they're coming down on you like meteorites just so did you have to step back and say whoo i need a spa day you know, I will say this, this is, uh, the pandemic was, um, I call them the pandemic blessings. And I think that it was a blessing for me in, in many ways. I, prior to the pandemic, I was working a lot. I was working here. I was doing private practice in the evening on, on the weekend. And you're a mother. I'm a mom. Right. And so when the pandemic came and a couple weeks in and my daughter was like, you know, mommy, it's so nice to have you at home. And I had to like check myself, right? I, it was the moment that I like, it hit me that I need to ground myself here. And, you know, I cooked dinner, we played games, we, we bonded, right? Mm-hmm. And really reconnected as it, it, what's most important to me, which is being a parent. 
And so I think that alone was my was my pandemic blessing. And in the midst of that, you know, I had some professional accomplishments, which were great. But I was also I had that was a big reset for me. So I didn't need anyone else to tell me anything but her to tell me, I like for you to be home. That was that was like, you know, therapy comes in many different ways. That was it. Right. And so it helped me reorganize my my own priorities and my own thoughts. Hmm. And and I've been, you know, working very hard to stick to that as we return to work. That's still my priority. I've cut back a great deal um, to be able to make get home and make dinner and have time and be present. Yeah. Right? It's funny. Sometimes we'll say, well, I was home, but I was doing this. I was doing Be that. Be present. Right. But you weren't there. Yeah. Right. Being there is all the difference in the world. That's right. So, so I, I, um, was able, that was, that was therapeutic for me. You know, we were roller skating and we were doing this. It, it was, it was like fun. And how's so your roller skating? It's not as great as it is in my mind. <laughs> In my mind, it's it's great, but in reality, it's just not great. Right. Yeah. It's just my controlling personality won't let me let go. That's the problem. That's another issue. Your, your hair's flowing <laughs> in the wind, and you've got a beautiful I really dress see on. You're it. skating I around. See it. Yeah. I see that in my mind, but it's not happening. In reality, you're holding on for dear life. Yeah, and I, just... can, I cannot fall for the most part, but I'm not as, as smooth as I would like, you know? So it's it's it was... That's it's good to let your child see a vulnerable side. Totally, totally. I've got many of those. Um, you know, I've, it, it's true. So it was, it was, that was my pandemic blessing, right? But I think. That's a good one. Other, other. So that got me right, right away. And, and I also live a life that where I try to be very introspective and think through um, and reflective. And so. You know, I don't have it down 100%, but I'm a- always trying to look at myself and see where things can, can improve. And that was a time for that, for me. Where do you see this department in five years? Well, I'm, I'm planning a massive takeover. Uh, it's like a pinky in the brain moment where, you know, I'm trying to like make, I, I really am sort of, so it's funny, but it's not. I, I really want to infiltrate every piece of this university. Okay. And um, what we do here is unique and, and unlike what happens on other universities in that um, we really talk about community health. And my colleagues across the system, they're like, Tiffany, come on, cut it out. Stop doing all that stuff for faculty. Stop doing all that stuff for for staff. But I really believe that if we don't help everyone here, we won't be a healthy community. And so my goal is to infiltrate every division, every office, and start to talk about what health and mental health, or as we've been calling it, culture of care, means, means to your department and actualizing that. And so I, I hope that this department not only grows in, in the number of individual counselors, but it grows in its model of like in its community psychology model and its health model. Right. So not just psychology, even for health side, like I'm pushing that we can do flu shots outside. We don't have to do flu shots in this building. We can do things. We can take this show on the road. And to the degree that we do that, we, we, we increase health in our community. Yeah, it's huge. Um, and I'm largely aware, I, you know, on my mind, 
are all the people that folks in our community have lost to the pandemic and because of underlying health conditions and things like that. And so I think a lot outside of the box on what we can do. Um, so I, I, I think very grand and big um, about impacting everyone in this community about uh, mental health advocacy right. and self-care. I think uh, you say the self-care. I think that's like the low-hanging fruit. People can really do. Easily. Get off your damn phone. Get off the couch. Get away from the TV. Go for a walk. Easily. Go meet a neighbor. Meet a friend. Meet. Take them for a walk. Easily. Walk for 30 minutes and talk. Mm -hmm. And we can walk with people we don't know. Yes. So a lot of it is, you know, my staff up front here, they always laugh at me. (laughs) I say, I'll be right back. And then I'm back an hour later. And they're like, up oh, she's been or two hours later and like up oh, there she went yeah. because I've been standing out on the lawn talking to someone and having what I call like a mental health moment right or sometimes I would go sit on a bench and Dean Carone would come sit on the bench with me and we'd just watch people walk by and then we'd talk to them and so we just start talking right to people <laughs> and because that's what fills me up I, I mean I can stay in the pandemic but I love talking to people and I love this community now, so see, that's an oxymoron you could stay at home with a box of wine but you really love talking to people yeah yeah I like both actually <laughs> but uh, I mean I, I enjoy in this community I enjoy I enjoy talking to everyone here. And I think that the more that I, it's a part of that social construct, right? Whenever I meet someone and I stop and I chat, I learn something every single time that impacts the work that I do. And it renews my commitment to this community. And I hope that that's what's happening also in that exchange. Whether right. it's a stop to say, are you okay? Or how have you been? Or I went shopping last night or I ate this for dinner. It's, it could be quick. But it's meaningful to me. Like every exchange is very meaningful. And so that's how I get my fuel to do this, to do the work that I do. Right. It's funny, when I was thinking about this, the first psychiatrists I think of when I was a kid or how I was exposed to them was a gentleman who used to play a psychiatrist on MASH. He would come mm, in. And mm-hmm. He would he would come in and out. It's the same gentleman. He would come in and out. He would play poker once in a while with them and have a martini and leave. And then Frazier, when he was on Cheers, yeah, and uh-huh. then when he they moved Krause Gramer over to his his own show. Mm-hmm. When you think of people in that in your field, what are you thinking? Like what makes good therapists, good psychiatrists? Well, it's it's the ability to relate. And I think about social skills because therapy, um, the key to therapy is your ability to build rapport and to build a relationship with someone. You could have zero skills, but you'll still you'll still be able to help someone if you can relate and you can bond. And so you can teach skills to anyone. I can teach them to your kids, to my child, and they we will send them out. But the degree to which they have some charisma or some ability to connect is is what will make it work. Okay. Yeah. So being here naturally, that's very easy for you. You've got a very outgoing personality. And with a lot of kids nowadays, they don't. Their friends are all on social media. They have a thousand followers and they think those are a thousand friends. So you really got to pull some people out of their shell. That's right. To communicate here. That's right. And I don't, you know, 
I just come from a place where my heart is pure. And, you know, there are sometimes I'll stop students and just chat with them and say, like, what's going on? Like, what are you looking for? Where are you going? What is going on? You know, and Do you get like, any kind of like, what are you doing, lady? You know, sometimes they're a little bit like, oh, I don't know what she's talking about. But and then other times they feel like <laughs> she looks halfway professional. So we should talk back. And so, you know, it's. If you don't have these stains on your shirt, you yeah, know. <laughs> or or sometimes I realize, you know, I think some, I think they need food, or I think so, you know, I just am in mm-hmm. a moment where, um, so it, I do have to, I recognize that I have to go the extra mile, right, right. So I, I, so I totally see that as a responsibility. There are days when I'm tired and mm-hmm. and I don't have the bandwidth to go the extra mile, right. and that's true. But as a whole, my philosophy is that it's my job to go the extra mile. Yeah. And, you know, it's the little things. Totally. When I walk around this campus, I do my darndest just to say hello to everybody. That's right. Make eye contact, say hello. Right. Doesn't matter if it's a a faculty member or a student or anybody. Hello. How are you? That's right. How's your day? Have a good day. And And we all do that. That's just a better starting point for people to just be better. So when you talk about the low-hanging fruit, that's it right there. Because the the majority of folks in our community don't need to come to therapy. Right. Or they don't need to come to therapy at this time. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. They need to know that therapy is a tool in their toolbox for the future or when they need it. That's all. That's a win for me. The The win is not getting everyone in. The win is is them knowing that this is available to them. But the ability to say hello and to, to someone to just stop and listen to you for a minute or smile, that's the win. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're already amazing folks. We're, everyone here is, they, they thought to do the right thing. Right. Right? I mean, that's amazing. That's already a strength. And from there, we're just growing it. If you weren't in psychology, what would you be doing? Hmm. I don't know. Because I know you said early on, like you were the going to be the Oprah. Of I don't, I what don't, would you be doing? I don't, I never will. I, I would never be hosting a, a talk show. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, what if you could do this mm-hmm. in a different realm, like military or, or, um, you know, a corporation, you know, you worked at Apple or something. I would, I've thought about all of those things in the course of my career, but now I will never work for another, uh, uh, I, I'm not changing fields, right? right? right. So you're not going to enlist, join the Navy and become No, the, no, I thought about that yeah. early on. Um, and so I would, I'm not changing it up, but what I would probably do is I love business. And so I would probably f- make some widgets and try to sell them or uh, literally really like I would find some sort of business business opportunity to get myself involved in and grow have a little small business that sells something that's that's what I love um because my brain thinks that way um and and I think I like the opportunity to see things grow and so and I like to do it my way. And um, I took a. <laughs> you love this. I took one of these uh, personality type exams or something like that for, for work here. And it said, you value all the rules, but you'll find a way to get around every <laughs> single one. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I, I thought I took a lot of pride in that. <laughs> 
That's a badge of honor. And it's true, but it it was spot on. I never would have put it that way, but But. it is is true. And it's insightful for me, so I have to check myself like, oh, okay, watch it here. Yeah. If you can uh, leave students with one thing, what would you tell them? What would you want to pass on to them? I would just want students to know um, how competent and strong and and capable they are. I think that um, every student made it here on a set of skills, and and they're um, they deserve to be here. And I just would like every student to know that they deserve to be here. Um, it wasn't by accident and, you know, and there's no imposter syndrome. We, we didn't make a mistake like you deserve to be here and that you can do this. And so I just would want them to have the gift of confidence that and about their strengths to succeed here. That's a good thing. And, that, and you said something there, imposter, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like that's something new. These yeah. kids are worried about, everybody's worried about. Like I, I never heard of that 10 years ago and now it's like right. a thing. Everybody's worried about right. Nothing's, you know, none of this stuff is new. It's just the language, uh, the right? Phrase, like the di- right. somehow yeah. the somehow the uh, the dictionary got bigger, right? And so, and and it comes in waves. So it'll come in waves, and I also hear depression, come in waves, imposter syndrome, and really, I I think that people, po- especially in in the pandemic, beyond the pandemic, are really struggling to find the words for the way they feel. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that as a struggle, is that what you're saying is that I feel very scared about navigating this environment. Yeah, so do the rest of us, right? Right. Like, that's fair. But it's easier to call it imposter syndrome because it's also, again, like, I'm depressed. It's very detached. So if I say I'm scared, I'm scared to start my new job, Mm -hmm. that means that now I've shown a vulnerability. If I say, oh, yeah, it's that imposter syndrome I got going on, it sounds a little more, you know, less personal. Right. um, As if it came from the sky and it impacted me. Not that I had actual feelings that influenced it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's another one of those catchy things, a real thing, but also really combined with fear and anxiety and social skills and all of that stuff. I am glad you're here. Well, I'm glad you're thank doing you what very you're much. doing. Me too. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite a, it's my, it's my honor and my privilege to be here. Really. I'm glad we ran into each other at lunch in, I know May of 19. I'm glad you didn't quit after <laughs> our encounter. Not a it was, chance. it was questionable. <laughs> Not at it was, all. It was questionable. It was it was my it was my lunchtime self. <laughs> you were loud and happy and excited, <laughs> welcoming. Oh, hey! And then you left, and Myla's like, "She's my friend." <laughs> <laughs> Thank I don't know you. if that did Myla any good either. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, and talk. thank you for and, having me. And what you're doing is is a blessing. Like you know, oh, everybody needs you. a little help. You know, you're a a, a mind mechanic, and, and I'm, it's thank great you. that you're out there doing this. And this was your, I guess, your lifelong career path. It 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 is. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you for having me. Absolutely, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Herbert. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button. 
and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows at the website, justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.